mean what's your favorite verse or your favorite passage. I mean, I love John 3.16. I love the 23rd Psalm. But what's your favorite story from the Bible? If I told you, you need to teach a, a group of kids that are in the room next door. And I want you to teach them a story from the Bible with passion and energy. I want you to teach them a truth about who God is and what he's done for us. What story would you tell them? What story comes to mind? What's your favorite Bible story? I want you to take a minute and actually tell the person next to you. Turn to the person next to you. What's the story that comes to mind? What's the story you would tell? Tell your neighbor right now. All right, so, so uh, I've asked that question before, not to you, of course, but I actually get to ask that question to every starting point class that I get to teach. It's, we've done six or seven groups of classes, and, and I ask that question of people who are in the, the starting point class. I say, what's your, your favorite Bible story? And the usual favorites come back, right? They, 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 they refer to, uh, oh, I love the one where uh, Moses, you know, parts the Red Sea. I love the one where Noah gathers all those animals into the ark. I love the story where, where Peter walks on the water for a bit. I love the story of Jesus being born in a stable and, and all that goes with that. I love the story where Jesus takes a boy's lunch and he, he makes it feed 5,000 people on the hillside. Maybe those were some of your favorite stories. There is one, though. That far and above is the favorite story. Whenever I ask this question, in my informal little survey, there's one story that comes out over and over again as the favorite. You know what it is? David and Goliath. David and, maybe that was yours. David and Goliath, time after time after time, David and Goliath comes out as the favorite story from the Bible. I think it's because anybody who's ever been to Sunday school has heard it told over and over again. Every vacation Bible school I ever went to, I don't know why, every year, it didn't matter what the theme was, they told the story of David and Goliath, right? It's, it's been preached from this pulpit, I know it has, because it is a great story. The truth is, that story has great drama. There's terrific drama in the story of David and Goliath, where an enemy nation of God's people is at war with the Israelites. And this Philistine, Philistine champion named Goliath, he taunts and challenges the whole nation of Israel, of God's people. And in the process, Goliath defies the Israelite king. He defies the Israelite army. He even defies the God that the Israelites worship. While the entire Israelite nation, the entire army, cowers in fear. And then you enter David, right? Little shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He's only there on the front lines running an errand for his dad. But he hears the, the challenge, the taunt from this Philistine enemy. And he says, I'll have none of that. My God won't stand for that. He'll empower me. And then you know the story. David goes up against this Goliath, little shepherd boy, with a sling and a stone, and he slays the giant. It's an awesome story. It's the ultimate underdog story. That's, I think, why we love it so much. Because David, this great underdog, slays the giant. And, and we teach and preach great truths based on this story that no matter what your size with God you can slay your greatest foe that it's not your size that matters but it's the size of your God that matters that with God's help you can defeat the giants in your life we've we've taught those things we've preached those things those are the great truths that you can tease out of 
this awesome story, this great drama. But I'm here to tell you that there's more. There's more than just those generic truths that are awesome, don't get me wrong, but there's more in there. You know who told me that? God told me that. Because I will tell you that I actually had, uh, was in my starting point class and I heard someone say, David and Goliath my favorite. And I remember saying, oh yeah, that's a great story. I know everything in there. I've taught that a bunch of times. And God says, you haven't begun to draw out the truth that's in that story. You know nothing. He said, a little, he said it kindly, but I heard him say it. He's like, you haven't begun to see the truth I have in there. And he goes, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to take what is probably the most well-known, well-worn, well-taught story in the Bible, and I'm going to show you some new truths. So you get to the joy of getting to hear the, the new truths that God showed me as I went back to this text and studied it afresh, looking for what had I missed, what is in there that I'd never seen before. I, I'd seen some of, the, some of the, the, the trappings, but I hadn't drawn any truth out of the story. I'd always gone with the the well, more well-known ones. For the, for the next three weeks, you and I are going to look into this text and we're going to draw out three new... They're new truths to me. They may not be true to you. They might not be new to you. If, if they're not new to you, I'll tell you what. Humor me this week and I'll let you teach next week. How's that? Right? But these are new truths to me that God showed me. And I love it because it just... His, his word is living and active. Right? It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It never returns void. And you can't begin to plumb the depths of truth that's in there. But today, we're going to hopefully look at a new one, and you're going to draw some new strength and encouragement and challenge from a really well-known passage. So if you would, if you turn in your Bible to 1 Samuel 17, that would be a great idea. In fact, I'm going I'm to mention to you, you really need to bring your Bible these days. Two reasons. Number one is you don't have a convenient pew Bible in front of you anymore. There are some Bibles, if you forget one, in the back. The ushers can get you one. But even more than that, i got to tell you, I can't tell you how many times that I have like thought of a passage or a verse or an anecdote from Scripture, and I couldn't remember the address, but you know what I remembered? I kind of remembered, oh, it's towards the back, you know, the upper right-hand corner in my Bible, and I'd flip through and I'd find it. I'd cheat, and I'd find it because I was familiar with my own, my own Bible. So there's nothing like reading from your own Bible, so you can kind of go back to it and, and utilize it more effectively. So bring your Bible, because we're going to be camped in this thing for the next three weeks. If you didn't bring it this week, I'll have the, uh, the text for you on the screen. Here's what we'll do. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read a paragraph at a time. We'll read a paragraph. I'll make some editorial comments. We'll try to run through some of the early verses, because I know you know most of the details. And then... We'll move through the story, and when we get to the point where there's a new truth I want to try to uncover for us, we'll kind, of, we'll kind of stay there for a few moments and see if we can't tease out what it might mean for us today. Okay? That's my plan. So 1 Samuel 17, we'll start reading in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Let me set the context real quick for you. We're in the southern uh, half of Israel and uh, there is a battle. There's kind of a battle, uh, a border war here because the Philistines, they control the territory on the Mediterranean coast, the south 
southwestern coastal region. We call it the Gaza Strip today. So they basically camp in and control the entire Gaza Strip. The Israelites control Judah, which is the south-central portion of Israel. And so what you've got is you've got the Philistines trying to push their border into Judah, and you've got the Israelites trying to keep the Philistines in their area of the Gaza Strip. So you've got a bit of a border war here in the Valley of Elah. And both military camps think they have the competitive advantage. You know why? Because every military camp likes to be high. They like to be on a ridge because you can look down, your sight lines are good. You love to fight down, you love to shoot down, you love to work down because you have the, the, the height and competitive advantage over your foe. Well, in this instance, I've been in this valley, rather narrow valley, and there's two ridges. The Philistines are on this one ridge looking down, and the Israelites are on this other ridge. Both think they have the advantage, and they're really, if there's going to be a battle, they're going to meet in the valley between. That's where we are through verse 4. In verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So you got this huge giant. You've heard him described to you over nine feet tall, clearly head and shoulders above even the large-sized Philistines. He's head and shoulders above his uh, compatriot warriors. He is covered in bronze, bronze helmet, bronze suit of armor. The suit of armor weighs as much as a man, weighs 125 pounds, just his, just his armor suit. He's got bronze leggings. It's interesting, the, the author here says his spear, the shaft of his spear is like a weaver's rod. It's like this huge rod that you put on a loom when, when they would weave in these days. You and I would say it this way, man, the guy's spear was like a like a pole vault pole that was so long. It's like, we're talking about like a 10-foot pole. And it has, a, it has an iron tip on it. The iron tip alone weighs 15 pounds. You and I wouldn't be able to throw this spear out of our shadow. That's what the author is saying. Huge warrior with huge uh, uh, elements to, to, to fight with. He has got unbelievable sized weapons. That's what we get here. He's covered, he's covered as a warrior, head to toe in bronze, with a huge spear. His shield bearer, bearer goes ahead of him. His shield bearer probably is, the only thing he does is carry the shield. The shield is probably bigger than he is. It's like he's, it's like he's maneuvering a steel case door around to protect the giants. Verse 8. So Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are, are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Goliath challenges the Israelites to send out their best warrior. Send them out for one-on-one -on -one combat, hand-to-hand, -hand, a fight to the death. We'll settle it this way. And the, the losers will serve the winners. That's his, that's his challenge. 
Make no mistake, Goliath is not calling out any one person from the Israelites. He's actually, he's actually calling out one individual. He is calling out the Israelite warrior, the Israelite champion. You know who it is? He names him. It's King Saul. It's clearly he's calling King Saul to battle. How do I know that? Because a couple chapters earlier than this description, it makes it very clear. They, it describes King Saul right as he was being crowned king of Israel. 1 Samuel 9, 1 through 2. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites. He is the Israelite warrior, the Israelite champion. He is strong and well-spoken and well-respected. Besides that, he's a head taller than anybody else. He has a commanding presence. He's of, of kingly stature. And that's exactly what the Israelites were looking for. They were not looking for a statesman. They were not looking for a politician. They were not looking for a negotiator. The Israelites wanted a king who was first and foremost a warrior. How do I know that? Well, a chapter before this description of Saul, the Israelites make it very clear what they're looking for. In 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites say this, We want a king over us. They tell Samuel, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. See, the Israelites want a king who's first and foremost a military leader, who's a warrior himself, who is a champion. In fact, what they're looking for is their own version of Goliath. They want someone who can man-to-man, one-on-one, intimidate, challenge, and win over all of the Israelite enemies. That's what they're looking for in Saul. That's why they wanted him as king, because he was their Goliath. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was their champion. That's why Saul and the Israelites are dismayed and terrified. Because if they recognize that he's no match for Goliath, they're doomed. Because remember, he's an impressive young man who's without equal among the Israelites. He's the best they've got. And if he's no match for Goliath, the Israelites are in trouble. Well, of course they're terrified. Of course they're dismayed. Because Saul knows he's no match for this giant Goliath. Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Epaphrite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Here we learn that David is the youngest of eight brothers. I will tell you that some people have made the case that he was as young as 12 or 13 years old. Others have said, no, he was a, a later teen. We can kind of do the math in our head. We recognize that the the first three sons of Jesse are of military age. They're probably 20-something. So if you kind of back off their age, you end up somewhere in the 15, 16 range. He could be very young, but let's say he's 15 or 16. We have a young man. He's actually referred to, we'll, we'll talk next week, he's referred to as a boy. He's still a boy. 
But we have a young guy going up against this great warrior in Goliath. Now, David was the shepherd of his family's sheep herd. And on occasion, though, he did go visit King Saul, but not as a shepherd and certainly not as a warrior. He would go because he was King Saul's musician. And when King Saul would get into a, a dark mood, when he become depressed or, or anxious, David would make the trek from Bethlehem to go to his side and play the harp to soothe his frazzled nerves. He's done that a couple of times before the incident we're reading about. So David has made that trek for King Saul. That's how he serves King Saul, as a musician. Not a warrior, but a musician. And for 40 days, Goliath taunts and threatens the Israelites. Six weeks, he calls out King Saul, and King Saul stays in the background knowing he's no match for the warrior Goliath. He knows that they do not have a champion who can fight and win over this enemy foe. Verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So Jesse asked David to take some provisions, take some food to the front lines to his brothers, and then find out how your brothers are doing. Again, it's been six weeks. Jesse is anxious to find out how are the boys doing. For all he knows, they're in a constant battle. He does not realize that for 40 days the, the Philistine champion has been calling him out, but there's not been no battle so far. But Jesse doesn't know that back in Bethlehem. So he says, take these provisions, take this food to your brothers, find out how they are, then come back and let me know how they're doing. Verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. So David arrives at the front lines. He does what he's supposed to do. He drops off the bread and cheese to the the supervisor taking care of that. He greets his brothers, finds out how they're doing. And then he hears the enemy challenge and defy his God and his army. He heard it for the first time. And he says, uh-uh, I'll have none of that. You know how the story goes. He says, none of it. I'll go fight him. God will go with me. They try to persuade him and say, you're no match for him. He says, I'll do it. Goes out with a sling and stone. Boom. Lays out the giant. Why did I just go to the end of the story? Here's why. Because when you know the end of the story, verse 20 has some tremendous significance. In fact, when you know the end of the story, verse 20 becomes the hinge of the story. If you don't know the end of the story, you'd read over this, this verse and think nothing of it, like I have done many times in the past. But the truth is, Verse 20 is where the truth is. You want me to read it again? Early in the morning, 
David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. Sounds innocuous enough, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, the entire story of David and Goliath hinges on this verse. Let me ask you this. What if David had said no? What if David had said, Dad, bread and cheese? You want me to deliver bread and cheese? Now, I've been making the run as the musician for the king. That's important. I'll do that. But bread and cheese? Send one of my other brothers. We have plenty of servants. Send them. I can't waste my time bringing bread and cheese to the front lines. They can find out how my brothers are, and they'll, they'll tell us, send a servant. I'm not going to waste my time. Besides, I've got the flock to take care of. They're an unruly bunch, and I'm, I'm kind of busy. Don't think that's not plausible, people. You know why? Because that's probably the answer I would have given had my father asked me to go to the front lines with bread and cheese. I think it's the answer you probably would have given as well. But it says, David did exactly as Jesse directed. But what if he had said no? See, if David had said no, he would have missed the defining moment of his young life. If David had said no, he would have missed the opportunity that defines him as the fearless warrior, the man of faith, the man who God trusts, and the man who trusts God. If David had said no, he might never have become the enemy of Saul and the friend of Jonathan and the greatest, the greatest leader, the greatest king that is in Israel's history, if David had said no. If David had said no, we might never have known him as the man after God's own heart, as the author of over half of the book of Psalms. We might never have known him as the epitome of a true worshiper of God if he had said no. I'm here to tell you that David's identity, David's legacy, David's destiny hinged on him saying yes to delivering bread and cheese for his father. I had never seen that truth before. I mean, there's a takeaway truth for you and me today. You know what it is? The truth is that a simple act of service can lead you to your greatest opportunity. A simple act of service can change history. Your willingness to step into a simple act of service, to deliver bread and cheese, can mean the difference in your identity, your legacy, and your destiny. I'd never seen that truth before. That blows me away. That gives me a totally new perspective. Because God used to, He uses seemingly insignificant, mundane opportunities, opportunities to serve others, to position you for great impact. God uses your serving opportunities to position you so, so you can do something that's really influential, really amazing, have great impact. But God sets you up. He moves you into position through seemingly insignificant, mundane serving opportunities. That speaks to me. That changes the way I look at simple acts of service. Rather than deeming them insignificant, I start to see two things. I start to see God has a purpose and a plan in even the insignificant, mundane serving opportunities. He's already at work in a situation. And he's calling me to step into it. He's not calling me to do something, any, anything great. He's saying, will you step in? Because I'm already at work. 
See, you have to be already, you have to be convinced that God is already at work in a situation that He's calling you into. Because then it has significance. Then it has purpose. Then you do it with passion. Then you don't say, no, I'm too busy. You don't say, no, I've got to take care of the flock. You don't say, no, send someone else to do it. You step in. Why? Because you know God's at work. God's setting you up for your greatest opportunity. God's setting you up for, to have high impact. It seems insignificant to the untrained eye, but to people who know this story and know the truth here, you step in. You look for opportunities to serve. It changes your whole demeanor about opportunities to serve out there. God is at work. There's, there's a second thing you need to consider, though. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but uh, opportunities to, to serve other people never come at convenient times. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't come when you have nothing else to do. It doesn't come when you're not too busy. It doesn't come when you have no other responsibilities. Opportunities to serve come when your plate is full, when you have other things to do, when you're a really busy person. It comes at the worst time, usually for you personally. So I'm going to, here to remind you that if you want to be used by God in powerful ways through seemingly insignificant acts of service, but, but for great impact, you have to be willing to be inconvenienced. And that's where you and I drop the ball. Because we're unwilling to be inconvenienced. We're unwilling to drop what we're doing to submit to God's agenda. We're unwilling to see that God's at work and I should step in here because God might do something great, even though, to my eye, it looks like insignificant or mundane. The reality is we don't like being inconvenienced. I'm going to turn you back to verse 20. Look at David. David didn't get a pass on his normal responsibilities. He still had to find a shepherd to cover for his normal routine. That was still on his plate. It wasn't like he got a, a green light or a free pass and say, oh yeah, go do this and I'll cover. He had to find a shepherd to cover for him. He had to load up his own donkey or mule or carriage or cart or horse or something. And he had to take off early in the morning. Terribly inconvenient. Early morning trip that you had to load yourself and you had to find someone to cover for your normal routine to begin with. To deliver bread and cheese. And David says, I'll do it. Because he understands that God uses seemingly insignificant mundane acts of service to position you for great impact. That's the truth we take away. A willingness to be inconvenienced and a rock-solid conviction that God is already at work in the situation. But your availability is needed. You stepping in and say, yes, I'll do it, and not passing the buck. Not you being too busy, not, not saying get someone else to do it. It's you saying, I'll do it. I'll be the one. I'll step in. Why? Because God uses small acts of service to set you up for great impact. I took this truth and I was like, this is so awesome. But God knew I didn't have it in my heart yet. I had it in my head. So he taught me the lesson when I was out to dinner with my son. My son and I got kicked out of our house on a Thursday night. My wife was doing a little prayer meeting with some other women. We wanted to get out of there, right? So it was like a guy's night out. So we, we went looking for the greasiest burger and the saltiest fries we could find. Five Guys is the ticket. Five Guys Burgers and Fries. We're there in Newtown of Five Guys. It's so funny. We walked in. The place was empty. So they greet us. They go, hey. We're like, hey. And we go order our food, right? These big burgers. My son said, let's get the large Cajun fries. We finished them all. It was unbelievable. So we go in and we order our stuff. And, and we sit down. We, we sit at a table. And before we can sit down, 
uh, two young women walk in from sanctuary. I go, hey, and I know them, so we, we talked a little bit. Um, the next guy comes in is a guy who uh, I went to Panama with. We, we did a missions trip to Panama, so was, I greeted him. We talked and stuff. Meanwhile, the food had come. My son starts eating. Next person who comes in was a lady I knew from divorce recovery. So we started chatting. My son has finished his burger. I haven't touched mine yet. He's kind of annoyed at me, right? He's like, Dad, we can't come out. We can't go out to eat anymore. This is just not working. So he said, uh, why don't we move to the back? So we literally changed our seat. He, he was done. He just was working on the fries. I take my burger. We go into the back corner. Because everybody had walked in. It was so wild. I knew everybody. I was chatting it up, having a great time. And uh, sit in the back. I start to, to work on my meal. And um, in walks this father and son. And they sit in the other corner of the back. Kind of, we were over here. They're over here. And I recognize them. But I'm not going to tell my son I recognize him, right? And I don't know where from. I, 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 I said, man, I know this guy, but I, I don't know, you know, where or I can't remember his name. So I just kind of acted nonchalant, kept eating my burger. And um, finally my son says, Dad, quit looking over there. Right? So I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, you know what? I said, it's driving me crazy. I said, I know that guy, but I don't know where from. And my son just, without even, you know, looking up, he says, you should know him. He was my little league coach. And I said, oh, that's what it was. Four or five years ago, this guy coached my son for one season, helped him become a pitcher. And, um, and so I, I, I finished my burger and said, hey, before we leave, um, since he, he coached you and really built into you, let's just go greet him and, and say thank you and kind of just say we, we really appreciate what you did uh, four or five years ago. And my son was incredulous. It's like, Dad, can't we be normal? He goes, let's just ignore him and walk out. That's what people do. Right? And so I said, Jack, I said, I said, no, everyone wants to be recognized. I said, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. We'll just say, hey, coach, you know, had a great time a couple of years ago. Totally appreciated that. Um, you know, uh, just you meant a lot to us. God bless you kind of thing. And so my son's like, oh. So he gets up to his credit and initiates the contact because he actually remembered the coach and where the, the context. So he goes, so I just take the tray and I start to throw the stuff out. I'm going to give him the 30 seconds. So Jack's going to do it. Not me. Right. He goes over. He, he starts talking about it and they greet each other. They knew each other and caught up a little bit. I hadn't seen him in four or five years. And uh, so I come over and uh, it was great. I remembered the kid's name. Right. So I, I, I said, hey, to the kid and then hey, to the dad, I introduced myself. I didn't know if he remembered my name, at least. And um, before I could say anything else, the guy goes, uh, you're a pastor, right? And my son shot me a look like, don't you dare start preaching. I'm telling you, he was like that. If you embarrass me, I'll never eat with you again. Right. And I didn't say anything. All, right? All I did was and I said, yeah. And he goes, that church on Black Rock Turnpike? And I said, yeah, it's Black Rock Congregational Church. Yeah. And he goes, uh, I saw you in my neighborhood. And I'm like, he goes, yeah, I saw you. I saw you and a couple of guys. You were working on a yard of one of my neighbors a couple of weeks ago. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, I remember that. The outreach team and I, we went and we uh, kind of cut the grass and cleaned up a yard for someone who was in the hospital for an extended stay. And I said, we love this couple. We just wanted to help them out a little bit. He goes, he goes yeah, I, I saw you. He goes, I live across the street. He goes, I've gone and done the same thing on occasion. This guy's been in a long illness. And he said, um, 
goes, in fact, a couple nights ago, he said, there are a bunch of cars in the driveway. He goes, and I thought, uh-oh, that's probably bad news. He goes, so I went over to check what was going on. He goes, and there's a group from your church, and they were, they were praying for the guy. He goes, and not only that, everyone who was there praying, they all brought food so the wife wouldn't have to worry about cooking. And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, you know, it's probably our choir or, or one of our community groups. I said, that's just what we do. You know, someone who's having a tough time, we kind of pray for them and love them and just try to take, take care of their needs, cut their grass, whatever we can do, just to kind of help them out. And he goes, uh, can I come to your church? Right? And I said, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. I said, I mean, we've moved. We're not on Black Rock Turnpike anymore. I said, you can come, but you, you don't want to go to where... And he goes, because uh, I'm not a real religious guy. He goes, but... I want my son and I to come to your church. And here's what I'm thinking. So, so I'm, I'm living this truth of God uses small acts of service, seemingly insignificant, mundane acts of service, to set you up for great opportunity, to set you up for great impact. And you know what? See, now I'm living it. Now you're living it. Because we had a community group where choir members go pray for and, and bring casseroles for this family in need. We had an outreach team, a couple of guys who spent an afternoon cutting grass and picking up some limbs. And a neighbor saw it, an irreligious neighbor who says, I want to go to your church. You know what's going to happen? God has set us up for this guy. See, so now we get to share with him the love of Christ for him personally. He's seen it in action with his neighbor. But now we get to give him the gospel. We get to show him the love of Christ. See, we have to do something significant and powerful. And get this. Man, life and death hangs in the balance. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance with this guy. Eternity hangs in the balance. And God used a little grass mowing, a little casserole baking, a little praying to set us up for something significant and powerful and life and eternity impacting. That's the truth learned right here from David and Goliath. That God's at work. And all he wants from you is your willingness to be inconvenienced. You're willing to step into a small act of service so he can have high impact down the road. He's setting you up, people, for the kingdom. He's setting you up to, to help someone cross the line of faith. He's setting us up for this neighbor to help them find the love of the Savior. That's the kind of God we have. That's the truth from this passage. And all it demands from you and I is to look for opportunities. Don't shake them. Don't get someone else to do it. Don't say, well, I'm kind of busy. Got to take care of the flock. Step in. Why? Because God's at work and he's setting us up for great impact. Amen? Would you stand with me for the benediction? Probably my favorite benediction, and it couldn't be more appropriate for people who have been, just been challenged to step into small acts of service, insignificant, mundane acts of service, so that we can reach people with the love of Christ. We can reach people for significant kingdom gain. And it reads like this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generations forever and ever. Amen.